Welcome to Ask Andy featuring Andrew Redleaf. Ask Andy is sponsored by Park State Bank. Visit www.parkstatebank.com for all your banking needs. I want to talk today a little bit about the implications of the Fed tapering their bond and mortgage purchases and then sometime next year raising interest rates. First comment is there's a very, very strong consensus among market participants, and I believe among commentators too, that given how well this has been telegraphed, given that the taper will be gradual, as will what they call the liftoff, the raising of interest rates, that these are more or less priced into the market and will be absorbed easily. You know, sort of all the markets kind of predict that interest rates rise to the vicinity of one and three quarters, two percent, that at that level, the curve is very flat. You know, so basically two to maybe two and a half percent interest rates all the way from short term to 30 years. And in effect, that 2% becomes kind of the new zero, that we're in a state very much like today, only instead of interest rates in nominal terms being zero or very close to that, they settle in the vicinity of one and three quarters and 2%. Now, obviously, I uh, probably wouldn't be doing this podcast if I thought the consensus was correct. I believe there's a very, very strong possibility that we're at an inflection point. It's always risky and tricky and so forth to say something is an inflection point. It smacks a little bit of saying, you know, it's different this time. But I think there are some very clear reasons to believe, in fact, we are at an inflection point. And the thing that is inflecting is we've had at least since the financial crisis, but probably maybe even since 2000, perhaps one can even say 87, but certainly since the financial crisis, monetary policy has to be characterized as ultra, ultra easy, two ultras. Monetary policy has not been tight or punitive for, you know, many, many years, but, you know, since the financial crisis, even by those standards, ultra easy, and now for more than a decade. As a result, a number of propositions, number of sort of characteristics of the environment that in any previous era, or certainly for the overwhelming majority of time in which finance and financial records and data exists, a number of things that would have just been considered absurd, if not impossible, crazy, have come to be accepted as normal or at least the new normal. Among these, you know, sort of the first and quite prominent is negative absolute interest rates, not real rates, but negative nominal rates for a large portion of the globe for a considerable period of time. In more or less every era, this was considered, you know, sort of a physical impossibility, you know, kind of the equivalent of water running uphill. 
another maybe less strong, but pre the financial crisis, pre ultra easy, ultra ultra easy monetary policy, nobody would have guessed that central banks around the world could be absolutely dedicated to producing consumer price inflation and yet struggle to do so. More or less everybody would have assumed that with dedicated, coordinated, global money printing, that in fact authorities could produce consumer price inflation. It's almost on the order of the negative bound in interest rates, you know, sort of being a violation of what's almost a physical law, you know, water running downhill, which is to say that if you control supply and you can increase supply sort of infinitely, you ought to be able to lower the price. So central banks can, in fact, increase the supply of money and have, and if one considers, you know, consumer price inflation as a measure of the price of money, they ought to have been able to induce consumer price inflation, and they struggled. Another, you know, sort of proposition that people might have found very difficult to believe is the trillion dollars or more of market value currently in cryptocurrencies, which were designed to have no intrinsic value, to be useless in any physical or material kind of way, one of which, you know, even was designed as a joke. So there are a number of things in the landscape that have become accepted that, you know, for most of financial history would have been considered beyond unlikely, but, you know, all the way to sort of absurd. So it's my conjecture that, in fact, the era of ultra, ultra easy monetary policy is going to give way to what I would call a period of behind the curve monetary policy, which will last for multiple years, but will ultimately be followed by actually tight monetary policy. Now, there are a couple of reasons why this is the case and why now. The first point, and importantly, the Fed has clearly been wrong on their views and their predictions on consumer price inflation. The number greatly exceeds what they would have imagined. And it was it was only a year ago that I predicted 5% inflation for 2021. And I was trying to be provocative. You know, I believed inflation would be higher than people thought. I wanted to pick the lowest number I could that would in fact be completely outside of any other forecast would be provocative. And, you know, I did believe inflation would be higher than anybody else was saying. You know, I didn't really have a number in mind, 5%. Nice round number. And in fact, a year ago, that was a very provocative statement. Now, whether Fed policy over the last year has been wrong is something that can be subject to an irreconcilable debate. We don't know. Perhaps this was the best policy, but certainly inflation, consumer price inflation, has run hotter than they thought. I think also, you know, at this point, their call on the transient nature of inflation 
is very much in doubt, if not wrong already. I mean, certainly in their statements, they would have expected the pressures to be less widespread and for there to be more evidence of their abating. So it is now a matter of very much open division among commentators, economists, people who volunteer their opinions without being asked as to whether the current bout of inflation is transitory or subject to being more persistent. As people who've listened to these podcasts know, I'm in the persistent camp. And I think, you know, perhaps the two things that I would highlight right now is the double-digit increases in rent that are occurring throughout the country. And what I would say is obvious, latent, about to become patent labor cost pressures. More job openings than unemployed. The highest quit rate, I believe, as long as they've kept data, a number of kind of organized strikes or work stoppages, and a general sympathy for the status of labor versus capital. And this, I believe there's a longshoreman's contract coming due in the middle of next year. It's really impossible to imagine that they won't demand it and, in fact, be able to obtain substantial wage increases. So wage increases are coming down the pipe and are more or less baked into the cake. If, in fact, inflation reported headline consumer price inflation continues to have the kind of headline numbers we've had in less than a year, the transient school will be in a place of acknowledging that you know it wasn't really transient but maybe the position is it's been longer than we thought, but some pressures are easing. I believe this is wrong. Again, hearkening back to a previous era and a proposition that would have been considered absurd that is now reasonably widely accepted. To wit, a 2% interest rate will be effective in choking off 5 or 6% inflation. Now, in a previous era, more or less everyone would have assumed that negative 3% real interest rates, that a 2% interest rate in the face of 5% consumer price inflation would be irresponsibly accommodative, highly inflationary, etc. So I don't really buy that. Now, why, one might ask, Did it take so long for consumer price inflation to appear? How was it that the new normal, inclusive of things that people never would have believed before, came to pass? And I think, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, what we saw is that money creation went almost entirely either out of circulation or into financial markets into capital expansion. So the money creation, the easy monetary policy was certainly a contributor or a facilitator of the fracking revolution, which dramatically lowered energy prices. It was also a significant contributor to both the property bubble in China, but also 
the expansion of industrial production and capability in China and the rest of Asia. I think a couple of things have changed. First, with the COVID relief programs and the the various stimulus, uh, more money went directly to consumers or to people and outside, though certainly some went to creating the crypto bubble and the Robin Hood slash meme stock phenomena. But more of it went to consumers and to consumer goods. And in fact, currently we are consuming materially more. The consumer goods sector of the economy is bigger than it was pre-pandemic 2019, something like 15 or 20% increase. I would posit that in point of fact, companies are going to choose to raise prices rather than increase capacity. First of all, the obstacles and uncertainty in increasing capacity are prominent, obvious, and substantial. So you're not going to build a factory if you have uncertainty. The availability and the price of all your inputs, power, energy, transportation, logistics, raw material, and labor. All of those things are uncertain and questionable. To me, most prominent labor, transportation, and energy availability, but perhaps others. So why not wait and raise prices while one sees excess demand? And this, in fact, will be supportive of the acceptance of wage increases and a classic kind of cost push inflation. Now, I described at the beginning this period as being one of behind the curve. And once it becomes established that inflation is persistent, that there are sort of structural changes in the labor market, structural issues in increasing supply matters, you know, such as, you know, the electric grid and so forth, the Fed's position will be that monetary policy can't solve those structural issues and that therefore were monetary policy to make a serious effort to combat what is becoming persistent inflation, the cost would outweigh the benefits. But what I would expect to happen is as long as inflation is running meaningfully higher than nominal interest rates, the direction of interest rates becomes a one-way street that markets assume that, you know, though the Fed has raised to one and a half or one and three quarters or two, given the four, five, six percent inflation out there, they can't really cut or cutting would be a mistake and cutting would be bad. And therefore, one could expect the markets to effectively front run the Fed. Both companies and individuals will borrow. They'll make an effort to extend maturities. I spoke in a previous podcast of the massive inventory build, I expect. And all of this feeds upon itself and creates the cycle where the Fed is behind and being behind 
pushes the process forward. Once you're behind, it's hard to catch up and that cycle persists. If in fact I'm right that we are transitioning, we are at an inflection point, we're moving from ultra-ultra-easy monetary policy to a period of what I've called behind the curve of period where interest rates are behind inflation and everybody knows it and everybody sees it and the direction of interest rates is seen as kind of a one-way bet. The Fed's hands are tied and increases are on the horizon. This is generically a strong headwind for financial markets and you know certainly many of the inflation plays many of the you know like sort of earliest things that one might do in a portfolio if one was in the inflation camp have already moved the thing i think is most interesting for that environment is both you know i think financials in general who have now you know borrowed long and are lending short and generally have access to credit markets and opportunities. I think generically financials will be a better performing sector over this period and I particularly would recommend the life insurers which still traded a discount to book, uh, have very long dated cheap liabilities and will benefit from this environment. The the large metropolitan life is, I think, the largest. A small one at a considerable discount that my friend Gary Kohlers has pointed out to me on several occasions. His company called National Western Life, NWLI. I think those are very interesting. Again, welcome your questions, comments, and interest. Thank you all again. And we will be back soon. Thank you for listening to Ask Andy. If you would like to submit a question, please email askandypodcast at gmail.com. Ask Andy is sponsored by Park State Bank. Visit www.parkstatebank.com for all your banking needs.